0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martini's coming up.
1: Glad you're with us on this Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready. It's the full Ginsburg today. Yes, I know that was originally in relation to a different Ginsburg, the attorney for Monica Lewinsky, who uh, was on every Sunday morning show. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the focus of the political world and the legal world right now and of course uh, her family is in mourning we got the news as most of you know uh, Friday evening that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died at the age of 87 after multiple bouts with cancer metastatic pancreatic cancer Uh, eventually claimed her life, 27 years on the high court. Jim, we're not going to sugarcoat it. We disagreed with her often and vigorously. The court does have a lot more unanimous decisions than we often uh, recognize, since those aren't the ones that get a ton of attention. So I'm sure we agreed with her uh, more than we realize. But uh, on, on, on the critical issues, we generally did not. But she did have a respect for institutions and norms. For example, she recently said if the ERA was going to come back, it had to start all over again. Her ability to get along with conservatives like Justice Scalia, I think, is uh, refreshing to think about in a day where partisanship is so bitter and and divisive right now. Uh, And also, uh, President Trump with a uh, magnanimous uh, first statement after learning of this after a rally in Minnesota on Friday night. Here's what the president had to say.
0: She just died? Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman. Whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life. I'm actually sad to hear that. I am sad to hear that. Thank you very much.
1: And of course, Jim, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that it's a chance for a more consistent conservative to to come on the court, so uh, a multi pronged good martini. But obviously, um, our, our condolences to the Ginsburg family.
0: Yeah, watching Trump's response to that, uh, as many you know listeners probably know, he was giving a speech when the news broke that uh, Justice Ginsburg had passed away, and he was giving you know the standard Trump campaign speech. Apparently, he was even talking about who he might appoint to the Supreme Court. You know, no one rushed up to the stage to hand him a note or, or anything like that. So you had this kind of surreal, odd circumstance in which the president of the United States was likely to be, you know, not the last person to know, but probably the last major player in our government to know because he was doing something when the word broke and everybody else in the world was checking their phones and probably getting texts and calls and things like that. So we're seeing Trump's genuine first reaction to it and I say this as a guy who is very critical of the president very often, particularly about his temperament, his uh, approach to people and things like that. Donald Trump was appropriate. He was magnanimous. He was empathetic. It was everything I've kind of wanted to see in the, as a human factor, not necessarily as a policy factor, from this president from the beginning. So he's capable of doing this. And by the way, the fact that it was playing um, – Elton John's Hold Me Closer Tiny Dancer for a very tiny but powerful Supreme Court Justice, just almost made like this cinematically perfect. But um, so first of all, I, you know, for a president who I've had great frustration with about the way he reacts to things and his temper and things like I, I that, was that was pitch perfect. Well done, Mr. President. I'd like to see more of this from you. Um, and then as for Ginsburg, look, you know, if you have I'm going to use a sports metaphor here. So so bear with me, listeners, that, uh, you know, yes, it's been two terrible weeks for the, for the Jets. Um, but whenever you have a rival, whenever you have someone who you really, you know, can't stand and they have some sort of the other team has a terrible injury and their best player is out, you know, maybe your team has a better chance of winning. But kind of in the back of your mind, there's that sense of it. It's not really it's not the same kind of win because they didn't have that. They weren't at their full strength and their full apex. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No matter how much we may have disagreed with her, was a worthy opponent in every sense of the word. From her intellect, which I don't think can be disputed, from her—I um, don't want to say tenacity because she was not a uh, she was not a vicious woman. Uh, you know, she spoke very quietly, and the entire room went quiet to listen to her. Uh, uh, she was principled. I didn't necessarily agree with her principles. I think we have different principles than she does, but she had a very clear idea of what the law ought to be and way American life ought to be. And she was consistent in that and she fought hard and with everything she had for what she believed in. And if you care about this country, even if you don't agree with her, you can respect that. You can see her as someone, uh, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? She, She played the game of how being a Supreme court justice and attempting to shape the law and to build a, you know, a more perfect union in her vision of it as well as anybody. And so even if you didn't agree with her, I think if you're a human being, it doesn't take much to recognize why she had so many admirers and why so many people revered her so much and why they are so just, you know, utterly bereft at the thought of her passing. So look, by any stretch of the imagination, this was a life well lived, a life fully lived. And, uh, you know, she's probably likely to be one of the most discussed you know, discussed as in D-I-S-C-U-S-S-E-D, not discussed as in, you know, disgusting. Uh, One of the most frequently uh, talked about members of the Supreme Court for many years to come. And I think that will be uh, one of her legacy. I think she is arguably one of the defining justices of our time.
1: And Jim, uh, this shouldn't be a hard bar to clear, but it certainly wasn't cleared with the death of Justice Scalia. I thought the right was very magnanimous and, and and conducted itself well in the immediate aftermath of the news uh there wasn't i didn't see hardly any grave dancing where as opposed to the passing of justice scalia uh the vitriol was out quickly and frequently back in 2016 so um i think uh as, as much as uh the politics uh, has gotten e- even nastier over four years uh i think that was a better moment on friday night
0: yeah, you know, I'm sure you could find some Yahoo on Twitter uh, who's who's saying terrible things. And it's an unfortunate fact of life when you give the microphone to the vast majority of the American public, and I guess the world public, you're going to find somebody who's going to say that. But I think anyone of any position of responsibility, any elected office holder, recognizes who she was. And at least, you know, at the very least, uh, there is no need to dance in the grave of your political opponents. Lots of your, the, Even the worst person in the world is people who love them and who are hurting upon their passing. So... Um, yeah, you know, hopefully we hopefully this trend of of people celebrating the death of someone who they don't like, uh, dies off pretty quickly.
1: All right, Jim, let's move to the bad martini now. And the political reaction came quicker than most people's conscience would normally prefer. But look, we're six weeks away from a presidential election. You knew it wouldn't take long for the political ramifications to come out. Should there be a confirmation process prior to November 3rd? Should it start and continue into the lame duck? What What's the right process? The Democrats, of course, trotting out Mitch McConnell's rule from 2016 that uh, with an election coming up and then a lame duck president who couldn't be reelected, unlike now, uh, and a Senate uh, controlled by the other party, it should be left up to the people. They're obviously throwing that back at Mitch McConnell. They're throwing it back at Lindsey Graham, who even said post-Kavanaugh, apparently, uh, that he wouldn't do it this close to an election. But now he's planning to support the president's strategy here. Um, The idea here that uh, this is some sort of uh, constitutional crisis, if in fact the Republicans do this before Election Day, maybe you can say there's a bit of hypocrisy there on some level. But nonetheless, as you point out at the very top of the morning jolt today, Jim, there's the role in the Constitution for the president to nominate and a role of the Senate to advise and consent with no timetable or conditions given.
0: Yeah, Greg, in circumstances like this, the, the first question that I think we ought to be asking, all right, so what does the Constitution say? And in this circumstance, the Constitution doesn't say all that much. It says, you know, uh, right there, Article 2, he shall have the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two thirds of the Senate's present concur. And he shall nominate with advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court and all other officers of the United States. So it doesn't really say anything in there about how close the vacancy can be to Election Day. It doesn't say anything about whether the Senate has to hold hearings on the nominee. It doesn't say anything about whether the Senate has to vote on that nominee. Uh, As it happened in the case of Merrick Garland, I think if the Senate does not vote on a nominee, that is a de facto rejection. Uh, And also doesn't say about whether the Senate can vote for a nominee in a lame duck session. So the idea, you know, this this is a hijacking or this is illy. No, no, this is all... In keeping with this, you could argue that there's, you know, other factors at work, a custom and pre- past precedent and things like that. But uh, you know, put me as among those who thinks that yeah, Merrick Garland probably should have gotten a hearing. I, I think if you want to make the argument that, um, you know, that, that you, the Senate has under the Constitution can accept a nominee, can reject a nominee, uh, saying we're not even going to give this guy a hearing does sound like seem a little, you know, obstinate and closed-minded about the matter. But here's the thing. The Senate at that time had 54 Republicans, 46 Democrats. If you think 54, you know, uh, four, at least four Republicans were going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll replace Antonin Scalia with an Obama nominee, I, I think you're just not being realistic about that. Um, if it, I, so, probably what could have and should have happened is that Merrick Garland came up for a vote, he would have been rejected. They would have said to no, Obama, send another one, and you could have repeated that process for as many times as necessary until, you know, Trump was elected, or alternately, Obama could have nominated someone who was not his kind of judge, not the person he wanted, but he could have recognized, okay, I have a Republican controlled Senate, I'm replacing Scalia, this is not the time where I'm going to be able to get the perfect judge. I know in some Democrats' eyes, uh, Merrick Garland represented a a compromise pick, that he was uh, centrist as far as, you know, realistic Democratic options go, but clearly Republicans were not hearing it and were not interested in him. Look, up until, you know, you could argue, I would argue the George W. Bush years. Some people might say that Clarence Thomas is a precursor. Some people might say Robert Bork is a precursor. But really up until, you know, the Bush years, it was pretty common for a Supreme Court nominee to get a wide bipartisan majority Because most senators accepted that the ideology of the judge, their legal philosophy, the likelihood they would decide on certain issues, was not legitimate criteria for evaluating a judge. It didn't matter whether you saw it as one of your judges or one of the other guy's judges. What matters was, were they qualified? Did they have any skeletons in their closet? Was there any, you know, scandals or or any good reason to keep them off? And that's how you ended up having Stephen Breyer confirmed by a vote of 87 to 9. That's how Ginsburg got confirmed, 96 to 3. Souter, nominated by George H.W. Bush, and who, by the way, was allegedly this right-wing maniac. They're actually saying if you if if David Souter gets nominated, he's going to destroy the right to abortion. It didn't turn out that way. But anyway, he was confirmed ninety-nine. Justice Kennedy ninety-seven to nothing back in nineteen eighty-seven. Uh, Antonin Scalia was confirmed ninety-eight to nothing. Right. So for a long, and Sandra Day O'Connor was ninety-nine to nothing. And so for a long time, there was this mentality. That, that, you know, that it didn't matter what your ideology was. If you were qualified for the job, you're qualified for the job. And everybody in the Senate was more or less obligated to vote in support. Unless, you know, and the, the ideology, ideological objections were for the crazy fringe. Then along comes John Roberts, who you may recall back then, um, uh, Rehnquist passed away. So all of a sudden you had two whole, two, uh, both O'Connor stepping down and Rehnquist. So you had two open seats at the same time. Roberts was confirmed 78-22, but the real fight came over Justice Samuel Alito, including the filibuster supported by then-Senator Barack Obama. Uh, this was the beginning of the fight that led to the nuclear option destroying the Senate, uh, the, the use of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. Harry Reid famously did it, uh, eliminated the filibuster for non-Supreme Court judicial nomination fights. Look, everybody in this has always operated on one principle. That principle is I should get what I want. Anything that gets me what I want is legal, constitutional and good and, and and all of that. Anything where I don't get what I want is unconstitutional and bad and the greatest outrage of all time. Now, that's exactly right. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. So there is nothing that says Donald Trump cannot nominate someone. There is nothing that says the Senate can confirm someone. Uh, they need 50 votes, either 51 votes to confirm or 50 votes and Mike Pence can break the tie. I think that is a extremely achievable threshold, depending on who the president uh, nominates. He's put out now a grand total of 46 uh, potential nominees. Uh, He had his original list in 2016, he expanded it a bit in 2017, and he updated it just a little bit earlier this year. Um, And I think You know, I've reviewed every last court case of every last of the 46, but the overwhelming majority would be acceptable to, I suspect, 50 Republican senators. We'll see how it shakes out. You could make the argument that they should hold the vote after the election. I don't know if you'd be able to hold it. Six weeks is kind of a tight timetable, depending on when the president uh, makes the decision. Reportedly, it's going to come as early as Thursday or Friday. But uh, I mean, if we're up to me, Greg, I'd say take your time. This generates a great, this is the biggest story in the country right now. And this is the one area where Donald Trump has delivered for his conservative base, where most, you know, 90 some percent of Republicans are greatly enthusiastic about it. Even people who are not fans of Trump personally like these selections. If I'm President Trump, I want this to drag out and to eat up as much of the time between now and Election Day as possible, because this is me at my best. This is the one thing that unites people behind me. Is this going to guarantee him a victory? I don't know. And I, does this complicate life for Susan Collins? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Does this complicate life for Cory Gardner? Maybe. But then again, if you're, Carter, if you're Gardner and Collins, maybe this is where you want to go down. You know, go down. You know, if you're going to lose your seat, lose your seat because you ended up supporting a judge you who you really thought was terrific. So we'll see how this shakes out, Greg. But I think that there's really nothing Democrats can do to stop this, and everything they're doing and everything they're threatening just happens to be things that they were already threatening, like packing the court. and <laughs> making D.C. a state, making Puerto Rico a state, and things like that.
1: And killing the filibuster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. We're going to threaten these things again. Things we're already going to do, even if you didn't uh, uh, try to put uh, this confirmation process through. So, yeah, a lot of good points that you made there, Jim. And I would just uh, follow up with saying that Murkowski and Collins have said that they don't want to vote before Election Day. But uh, if Collins wants to be reelected, she might end up uh, changing her mind on that. Uh, For those those who don't like the uh, vitriolic uh, trend on judicial nominations, he's not the only guilty party, but he's a big one. And that's Joe Biden, who was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee for both the Robert Bork fiasco. Teddy Kennedy led that uh, character assassination, but Biden was certainly the wingman. And he was chairman during the, uh, the high-tech lynching of Clarence Thomas. And the only thing he's done since then is apologize to Anita Hill, uh, and so the Republicans were so incensed, like you said, that the next time there was a Democratic nomination, they confirmed Ruth Bader Ginsburg ninety six to three. Even in the uh, George W. Bush nominations, do you remember Joe Biden uh, telling John Roberts, "We are rolling the dice on you, man," uh, because he hadn't been on the D.C. circuit that long, and then, man. and then. Man. He, <laughs> And, or maybe it was Judge. Maybe it was we're rolling the dice on you, Judge. But, uh, and then Judge was... Judge, man! <laughs> And then with Sam Alito, he wore a Princeton hat to mock uh, Alito's time at Princeton because he didn't think during the confirmation hearings on the on the dais. Uh, so uh, the man who's telling you all about how, you know, decorum and dignity are, are, are the way we have to return uh, doesn't exactly have a track record that can be well defended on, on this issue. Secondly, Trump also has said it's going to be a woman and we don't know who that's going to be yet. There are several women on his list. The two names that in the past two days keep floating to the top are Amy Coney Barrett, who is reportedly uh, very much under consideration uh, when Brett Kavanaugh was selected, and also Barbara Lagoa, who's been on the 11th Circuit for a little while. She was on the Florida Supreme Court before that. Hispanic woman, so maybe he might have some political calculations there. Jim, if uh, the past is prologue and you thought the left's treatment of Brett Kavanaugh was bad, wait till it's a woman, perhaps a minority woman, just days before an election, because if you look at Clarence Thomas and how they treated Sarah Palin, uh, it's it, the vitriol's always there. But when it's people who should be on their side, the vitriol gets even more intense.
0: Yeah, look, I I've, you know I, I have no idea who the selection is going to be. I, I only hear what everybody else hears. Um, I, I do think it's interesting. I was like, I, I think the vitriol towards Amy Comey Barrett. And the line was it? Was it, I believe it was Feinstein who said, "The doctrine lives loudly within you." Yes, the doctrine. Which, by the way, really could have been used as a line of dialogue in Episode Nine for Star Wars. Just <laughs> it just feels like it, that one of you know something that belongs in there. Um, that really could have and should have like I, if there's any if you think by nominating a Catholic judge you are likely to get some Democratic senator to go off on some anti-Catholic rant or, or, or something like that. Maybe that makes sense in those upper Midwestern states. Maybe this is a, there's a political value to that. You're not really supposed to make that as your primary criteria in selecting the judge. You want the best judge you can possibly nominate. Um, I think Amy Comey Barrett stands out as the most... Um, kind of the most well-known, particularly in in, in social conservative and, and Christian conservative circles. I don't know if this means she's more likely to be selected. I do know there was a little bit of disappointment when Kavanaugh was the pick uh, instead of Barrett last time around. I mean, you know, small disappointment, not, not you know, anybody setting their hair on fire. So I think if Barrett gets passed over twice, you might hear a little, a little louder grumbling this time. But uh, look, they're all good judges. So it's not like there's a, you know, uh, you're, you're making a crazy pick by going with one of the options on the list.
1: The argument for Lagoa could be that she was confirmed 80 to 15 as opposed to Barrett, who was pretty much along party lines. But uh, you're going to see the signs with the fill in the blank stop whoever the nominee is, just like when it was Kavanaugh, because it's one of these seats where the balance of the court does shift. That's why Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy was such a big deal. Clarence Thomas replacing Thurgood Marshall was such a big deal. And of course, uh, Whizzer White, who was appointed by a Democrat, turned out to be quite conservative. And uh, Republicans nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg and actually confirmed her uh, 96 to 3. Let's get to the craziness on this. Uh, For that, we turn to the esteemed Barack Obama, president of the United States for eight years. Uh, He says that the Republicans invented the rule in 2016 by refusing to hold a hearing for Merrick Garland, and he says Republicans have to hold to that precedent now. He says, quote, a basic principle of the law and of everyday fairness, he always loves to go to fairness, is that we apply rules with consistency and not based on what's convenient or advantageous at the moment. The rule of law, the legitimacy of our courts, the fundamental workings of our democracy, Jim, all depend on that basic principle and then put in more hysterical liberal language, you've got former CNN contributor Reza Aslan saying, if they even try to replace RBG, we burn the entire effing thing down. So the left is handling this well.
0: Well, you know, from perspective, when he says we burn the entire effing thing down, he means like um, it's already happening in Portland uh, and and the Seattle chop and Kenosha and uh, was it Lancaster, Pennsylvania and, and all this, you yeah. If you want to argue that, that Garland should have gotten a hearing, I agree with you. you know? I also note, though, that the, Repo- the argument of Democrats back, in, back then was not he should have a hearing. Democrats are going to vote. You know, the Republicans are going to vote, vote to reject him. And that's fine. That's their right. There was no good loser. <laughs> there was no none of that commentary. It was just you know it was you must confirm him. Democrat Republicans are being so obstinate. You know, look, you, you want if you want control over the nomination process, you go out and you win more than fifty votes that in the Senate. That's that's how it operates. Think of the presidency when it comes to the Supreme Court. Think of the presidency and fifty seats in the Senate as the Infinity Stones. Once you have all of them, you have total control and power over the entire process, like a snap of your fingers um i'm sure you've seen the the meme of of mitch mcconnell holding the infinity gauntlet you know this is you you've, you've got you've got it now here's the thing the republicans right now have 53 seats in the senate right yes right Okay, <laughs> so they could lose up to three um now you, I, I believe murkowski has already offered some comments indicating uh she doesn't think this should be either shouldn't be going forward or shouldn't go forward before the election i believe collins made comments kind of along those lines Theoretically, you could lose both of those and still have a 51 to 49 vote in favor of any particular nominee. You could have one more lose and end up with a 50-50 split and Mitch uh, and Mike Pence would come in and split the nominee. Um, by the way, Trump could very well get reelected. Trump could lose. I think right now you look at the polls, it's more likely Biden wins. But this is a giant new variable to throw in here. If Donald Trump puts three conservative slash strict constructionists slash originalists, whichever term you like, as a metaphor for good on the conservative side. If Donald Trump nominates three good Supreme Court justices who are on there for decades, a whole lot of Republicans and a whole lot of conservatives are going to look at Trump and say, you know what, for all his craziness, for all of his, you know, uh, uh, freakouts on Twitter, all the times he wasn't presidential, all the times that he, you know, created problems for himself. That's a pretty nice legacy. You know who didn't put three conservatives on the Supreme Court? George W. Bush. You know who else didn't put three conservatives on the Supreme Court? George H.W. Bush. So Donald Trump, you know, a big chunk of his legacy is at stake here. You know, a big chunk perhaps of Mitch McConnell's time as majority leader is at stake here. So if you think Republicans are going to just just take it nice and take it easy, Um, I don't think that uh, that, that's not particularly likely and they're not required to do so under the Constitution. So the idea that there's some sort of abstract notion of fairness that outweighs the powers that these elected officials have under the Constitution um, is is really not particularly compelling or convincing and not a very realistic way of looking at this. And by the way, if you want this this kind of, you know, Ragnarok to stop for every Supreme Court nomination, there are two ways to do it. One is to have the court legislate from the bench less. Go back to that John Roberts idea of their umpires calling balls and strikes. Their only determination is whether a rule violates the constitution. Their purpose is not to rewrite the law every time some issue comes along and to step in and say, you know what? (laughs) We've decided how the country should be on gay marriage. Here it is. Uh, And the second thing that they can do is you can kind of create these giant bipartisan majorities. You can say that we as the Senate are no longer gonna consider ideology of a nominee. Our only concern is whether they're qualified and whether they've got any scandals or any issues in their past. If you want to get back to that, we can get back to that at any time. But it can't be our guys get confirmed 98 to nothing and your guys are always going to be hammered through on a party line vote.
1: Yeah, no, that's crazy. I just think about John Roberts and his umpire balls and strikes uh, testimony during the confirmation process. I'm not sure how he would uh, defend that concerning his approach to Obamacare and how he rewrote the law to make it a tax. I think he was umpiring like Frank Drebin in the naked gun on that particular case.
0: (laughs) A perfect metaphor to start our week, Greg. (laughs) And also, did you
1: know the left has come up with another insult of Mitch McConnell that's going to turn into a great nickname? We've already got Cocaine Mitch, the Grim Reaper, the Collector of Skulls, and now the Washington Post is calling him an apex predator. So uh, congratulations, Mitch. Did the,
0: the McConnell reelection campaign uh, <laughs> purchase the Washington Post or something? Like, this is the only time you will see the McGrath campaign saying, Mitch McConnell, he's an apex predator in the Senate. And the McConnell ad that runs after it will say, Mitch McConnell, he's the apex predator in the Senate. <laughs>
1: oh, you think they're insults. They're just not. They're just kind of cool. So anyway, this is what Mitch does best. We'll see how it unfolds here. Jim, we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're always extremely grateful for a five-star rating and a kind review. Also, remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.